October 1st, 2015, and this is Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the University of Texas at San Antonio's Neuroscience Podcast. Today, our guest is Rodrigo Espana. Rodrigo is an assistant professor in the Department of Neurobiology and Anatomy at Drexel University College of Medicine. Rodrigo's research focuses on hypocretin modulation of arousal-related processes, including sleep-wake function, stress, and motivated behavior. Welcome, Rodrigo. Thank you. And around the room, we have Idaida Oliva. Hello. And we have Gerard Bowden. Hello. And me, your host today, Matt Wanit. So, Rodrigo, I'd like to start, um, to get your opinion. Um, you'd mentioned a lot um, that arousal can be thought of as a continuum and is critical for many behaviors. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how hypocretins, also known as erections, sort of fit into the system. How are they involved with regulating arousal and wakefulness? And you're talking about where hypocretin is made, where it's released in the brain. What, what do we know about the system so far? Yeah, so I think you're correct. The hypocretins are involved in the regulation of arousal. Um, we have a lot of evidence for this. Uh, these peptides are produced in the lateral hypothalamus, and they project to all of the arousal regions that we've known about for a long time, including noradrenergic, dopaminergic, histaminergic, serotonergic systems, and a whole host of others. And so by uh, exciting those regions that are involved in the regulation of arousal, the hypocretins themselves can impact arousal and arousal-dependent behaviors. So what would be an arousal-dependent behavior? Are all behaviors sort of dependent in some degree upon arousal or are some more sensitive to others? I think one of the most interesting facets you said was that arousal isn't sort of like a unitary process. It seems to follow a continuum. And, you know, are there some circumstances and a, a behavior may be more arousal dependent as opposed to other circumstances where it's not? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And I think that if, if you go into the literature, it's actually really hard to find adequate discussion of arousal as a construct. Some people call it general arousal. And, um, and so because of that, it's, it's a little bit difficult to speak about. And so a lot of what I'm going to say here, um, I don't know if, if there's really a, a scientific validation for it per se, um, but there's a lot of little bits of evidence that would suggest that what I'm going to say is accurate. Um, and specifically, this continuum of arousal is, we see it all the time, right? So as I said in, in the discussion today, when we're drowsy, we're displaying low levels of arousal, and we're not in a position, we're not in a state that's conducive for engaging in much behavior, or definitely not engaging in behaviors that require a lot of either effort or a lot of energy expenditure, things of that sort. And But at the same, within this continuum, if you raise arousal levels, you begin to be able to support those behaviors that require this energized activity and things of that sort. And then at a, uh, the other extent where you're in a hyperaroused state, now you're going to engage in behaviors that are requiring this hyperarousal. So clearly, if you're hyperaroused, you're not going to be sleeping. You're not going to be resting necessarily. Instead, you're going to be engaged in other tasks. And one could say that this arousal continuum is what we experience every day. We go through this continuum of arousal every single day. We wake up, we're drowsy, we become alert, we do our thing. We go to sleep, we become drowsy again. Um, one could also say, so 
this isn't directly relevant to your question, but I think it speaks to how arousal may support behavior, is that a lot of disorders involve dysfunction and arousal. So, for example, one could say that stress is an arousal disorder. I think you probably would agree with that. Yes. And so, um, is stress its own thing? Is stress its own construct, or is it a part of this arousal construct? I think that's the discussion that we can talk about in terms of motivated behavior, like I discussed today. Well, you put a lot of your, your work sort of within the context of drug addiction. So would you say drug addiction would be an example of a hyperarousal disorder? Yeah, that's, uh, that's a good question. I don't, know, I don't know if I would pigeonhole myself into that, <laughs> but uh, how about uh, I, I'll consider that in this answer. <laughs> I think that, yes, I, I think that that could be the case. I think, Sold. Yeah, I think that... that um, Drug addiction is probably a circumstance in which you create a plasticity in these neural systems that are involved in producing motivated behavior and you know reward-seeking behaviors and things of that sort that has now altered in such a way that the arousal construct is changed. And so then now you need to either use drugs or rewards or food or whatever this object is that you're seeking to maybe push you into a normal state of arousal. And likewise, when you don't have access to those things, you're not able to obtain those goals that you're, you're looking for, maybe you're in a less aroused state and you don't want that. So you would say it would sort of fit with more of a cube model of you're in sort of a potentially a dysphoric state and you're sort of trying to get back to that same level is sort of... Possibly. Possibly. And this could be independent of some kind of withdrawal effect, possibly like a direct pharmacological effect of the drug withdrawal type thing. But simply because you've altered your arousal systems, all these neurotransmitter systems presumably have been changed. We know dopamine systems change. We know that neuroadrenergic systems change with addiction. And so maybe those systems to be functioning at a normal level, you require access to these substances possibly. So how then within the context of drug addiction are the hypocretins involved? Like uh, you and others have that, you know, been exploring this question, I'd say, for probably the last 10 years. So what's the state of the field now? What do we know about, yeah, um, hypocretins or erexins and what they do in drug-related behaviors? Yeah, so we know, um, we know that the hypocretins are important for driving activity in these arousal regions. We, know, we have a lot of evidence that the hypocretins drive LC activity, they increase norepinephrine release in cortex, in the striatum. We also know that hypocretins alter dopamine levels in uh, striatum for sure, and that they regulate the effects of drugs of abuse. And so although all the evidence is, doesn't exist for all drugs of abuse, we do know, for example, from my work with cocaine and also from others' work with opiates, that you require an intact hypocretin system to be able to express normal behavior associated with morphine, associated with cocaine, and that one neurochemical feature of this is that um, you need a hypocretin system to express normal levels of dopamine in response to those drugs of abuse. Um, it's kind of interesting. So one thing about hypocretin is this is a neuropeptide, so it would have a modulatory effect. But the it's only made by, it looks like, one population of neurons in lateral hypothalamus. Do these cells also secrete fast-acting neurotransmitters like 
glutamate or GABA? There's some evidence that they co-localize with glutamate. Because um, early on, some of their like initial studies on their role of dopamine self-stimulation in terms of reward, it's now thought that that was actually activating directly lateral hypothalamus input to dopamine cells. Exactly. Um, and so do you think it's partly, you think it's only these specific population of cells that it was activating on, it was acting on, or do you think there's other no, neurons there, in that region? There's a lot of, there's a lot of neuron types in the lateral hypothalamus. So okay. I absolutely don't think it's just the hypocretin neurons. I do think that driving hypocretin neurons is consistent with increases in motivated behavior. And so by driving cells in the lateral hypothalamus, including the hypocretin cells, right. um, then you would increase dopamine responses and things of that sort. Okay. That makes sense. Um, so sort of following up, like, do you think that since uh, hypocretins are having an effect on, you know, both cocaine and, you know, opiates, and the way that cocaine and opiates influence the dopamine system are through different mechanisms, um, how do you think it's sort of working through a common mechanism, you know, to be able to exert these effects on sort of inhibiting the drug-induced dopamine release? Um, is it sort of working upstream of both of them, or potentially it's two separate pathways or two different, you know, uh, you know transduction pathways that the hypocretins are then influencing dopamine neurons or different neurons as well that are then sort of having indirect effects? That's a great question, and unfortunately I think the field doesn't have an adequate answer for it. I would say uh, a couple of other things um, before I answer the question, which is in addition to modulating the effects of opiates and cocaine, there's evidence that it affects some food self-administration, ethanol self-administration. Um, so it, the hypocretins are, are not specific to opiates and cocaine. So first I want to say that. Um, so one way that this, and obviously, and nicotine as well. So obviously these drugs don't all work in the same way. And so the likelihood that it interacts in different pathways is exist. What I would say, though, and, and in some ways one has to suspend judgment on this, I think, is that by regulating arousal and not specifically targeting a system or a circuit specifically like a cocaine-related circuit or an opiate-related circuit, I think by regulating arousal may be sufficient to alter self-administration or um, responses, neurochemical responses to many drugs of abuse and maybe many motivated behaviors. So if you can imagine that there's a threshold that needs to be met to support motivated behavior and that under normal circumstances, all of us here in the room are exhibiting that amount of arousal so that we can have this conversation and do what we do, if we somehow pharmacologically reduce that arousal, not enough to make you go to sleep, not enough to make you sedated, but enough to just drop it below this threshold, then all of a sudden, maybe we're not willing to or capable of engaging in said behavior. So if we put it in the context of my work with cocaine self-administration, if we use a compound that decreases hypocretin activity, let's say on dopamine cells or maybe on norepinephrine cells or maybe on all cells, um, all of a sudden now we've reduced our arousal to below this threshold that's necessary to support behavior. And so therefore, the animal is not willing to or incapable of engaging in as much of that behavior. 
So are there clinical trials of using this magic uh, um, hypocretin one, um, which receptor antagonist, which you had used in a lot of your studies? So is this a, a magic cure all? It doesn't seem to be having you know bringing you down too far, but potentially sort of you know blunts the effects of drugs. Is there is there any sort of clinical promise that this is a really good target? Um, yeah, that's a great question. We uh, our friends at Merck mm-hmm. uh, have produced a drug um, called Suvorexant which is a dual hypocretin receptor 1 and hypocretin receptor 2 antagonist um, that they are now marketing. It's gone through clinical trials for insomnia, and the, the drug is called Belsoma. And there, I, don't, I haven't read anything official about it yet, but there are rumors that this is going to go into some kind of clinical trial for motivated behavior and drug addiction. Um, we've... Um, worked with hypocretin 1 and 2 receptor antagonists, not, not the same suvorexant, but another one. And we've seen that it does decrease self-administration of cocaine. It does decrease dopamine responses to cocaine. And it doesn't seem to be in our hands with animals having access to cocaine. It doesn't seem to produce sedation. Um, the fact that the belsomer is being used for insomnia suggests that it does produce some kind of sedation. Some of the conversations I've had with people in the field suggest that rather than producing direct sedation, maybe it's dropping this arousal threshold just enough so that we're not, quote-unquote, motivated to sit there and stir our thoughts to get up and go turn on the TV, to turn around in bed, and it just attenuates our arousal just enough to let us go to sleep when we need to go to sleep. Um, so you sort of you mentioned that there is sort of two receptors. There was the, the the receptor one and the receptor two. And is it thought that there's sort of different sort of complemented behavioral profiles that activation of either one of these receptors would have on you know an individual? Yeah, that's that's uh, really interesting, and people have worked on this um, quite a bit. I would say uh, most of the work and some of the most convincing work has been done with mice that have knockout of either the one or the two receptor. Um, what it turns out to be is it appears that the hypocretin receptor one is less involved in sleep-wake function and more involved in motivational processing. So uh, if you knock out this um, receptor in mice, they show a very, very mild sleep disturbance, sleep-wake disturbance. If you knock out the hypocretin receptor two, then you see that these animals have a lot of disruptive sleep-waking and exhibit uh, a phenotype that's very similar to narcolepsy, where they may have something that could be construed as excessive daytime sleepiness. If you have a dual knockout, they look a lot like the hypocretin receptor 2 knockouts, that they have some sedation and sleep-wake dysfunction. When we use pharmacology against the hypocretin receptor 1, we see changes to motivation, but we don't see changes in sleep-wake function. These animals don't look sedated at all. Uh, when we do hypocretin receptor 2 manipulations, where we block that receptor, we don't see effects on motivation, but we do see some sedation. And so is then there some segregation as far as where these receptors are located in the brain? Is that, um, yeah, is there some segregation, which is then giving rise to sort of these sort of differential sort of behavioral profiles of activating the R1 versus the R2? Yes, I, I wish that the answer was that it was super clear that there was, you know, said motivation region that only had the hypocrete receptor one and said 
you know, sleep region that had only hypocrete receptor two. But unfortunately, it's not like that. Their brain is hard. The brain is <laughs> difficult. Yeah. Uh, it turns out that the region that one might think is the most involved in sleep-wake function, or at least from my perspective, is the locus ceruleus, at least amongst the, the critical ones. And it turns out that this region has hypocretin receptor 1, not hypocretin receptor 2 as one might predict. Uh, the ventral tegmental area, which has dopamine neurons that we've shown are involved in these motivated behaviors that we're manipulating with hypocretin uh, receptor antagonists, have both hypocretin receptor 1 and hypocretin receptor 2. The nucleus accumbens, which one might think is more involved in motivation than sleep, uh, is uh, uh, host only the hypocretin receptor 2. So in some ways, it's, it's not how one would want things to be if we wanted them to be simple. Yeah, brain is hard. The brain is hard. <laughs> um, so maybe... Getting back to the drug addiction angle a little bit um, and getting back to sort of the effects that, um, you know, modulation of the hypocretin system can have on evoked dopamine release, you had sort of, you had demonstrated that it can affect the kinetics of dopamine reuptake and looking particularly in sort of the context of cocaine. And I was wondering, do you think that that, like, that level, the, the level of dopamine or the, you know, the uptake kinetics, is that a critical, what's the behavioral phenotype of that? Is that the, the sort of driving th- factor in sort of, you know, addiction? Or do you think it's maybe, it's summed up over a lot of dopamine? And so when you're doing, you know, a, a discrete pulse or discrete activation, you're just getting evidence of sort of the, the kinetics here. And do you think that that's, those one of your more pronounced effects that you observe reliably? And is that, you know... Should we be targeting, you know, dopamine transporters as well? Is that something as well that, you know, sort of sort of a combined therapy or pharmacological approach, we should be targeting that, and that should have the desired effects on reducing drug-seeking behavior? That's a hard question to answer, uh, as you know. <laughs> so, yes, a lot of the effects that we've been getting have been, um, can be focused on the fact that the dopamine transporters, for one reason or another, are no longer taking up dopamine in the same way after cocaine, right? So in, if we treat an animal with a vehicle, you get the predicted uptake inhibition that cocaine produces. And when we treat with a hypocretin receptor 1 antagonist, we attenuate that effect. Now, does that mean that cocaine is less able to interact with a dopamine transporter? We don't know. Does it mean that the dopamine transporters... <laughs> are less efficient at transporting for some reason after treating with hypocretin receptor 1 antagonists? I don't know. Does it mean that the dopamine transporters have left the membrane or are less functional or have dimerized? We don't know. Uh, there's a lot of work left to be done there. Regarding the question of whether we should be targeting the dopamine transporter for the treatment of addiction, or at least for psychostimulant like cocaine, uh, I think that there's enough evidence to suggest that it, that is not the best target, um, that I would say probably not. Although, as you know, there's some evidence that if you treat with low doses of amphetamine, you can reduce cocaine self-administration. And the amphetamine obviously is interacting with the dopamine transporter, not exactly how cocaine is. Uh, so there might be a small angle where we might be able to treat something like that. Um, but... 
at the end, I think we all have to remember that regardless how we're elevating dopamine in the striatum, for example, that the, the final pathway is how it affects these neurons in the nucleus accumbens, for example. Uh, and so regardless whether we're doing this by increasing the dopamine that's being released or by inhibiting its reuptake, if we've increased dopamine in this region, maybe the target should be something that might be postsynaptic. At least that's another option. So I guess that also um, leads to the next question I was going to ask is, how do we know that the sort of drug-dependent effects that we're seeing of orexin are definitely VTA-dependent? Could they also be nucleus accumbens-dependent? And, you know, are, where are all sort of the brain regions where the, you know, hypocrite system could be actually influencing, um, you know, dopamine release? I mean, you mentioned it could be downstream there. And so yes. um, are potentially the beneficial effects you see on addiction being mediated further downstream? And that's what we see when you give a systemic injection. Yeah. So, so yeah, absolutely. It's, it's very possible. When we give a systemic injection, we're targeting hypocrete receptors all over the brain, um, the one receptor. And so, you know, we, there's some evidence, not as strong as with the dopamine literature, that the norepinephrine system is involved in aspects of motivated behavior and addiction, uh, several drugs of abuse. And so if we're treating systemically, we're targeting the locus ceruleus. And especially given that it has the highest concentration of hypocretin fibers and very dense population of uh, hypocretin receptor 1 containing neurons in the locus ceruleus, that could be one way where it's happening, independent of the dopamine system. And there's a whole host of regions that this could be happening. And so the way that I like to look at it is that, yes, a lot of our work has focused on dopamine systems, and there's lots of reasons why we've done that, but that really hypocretin is orchestrating its effects via a whole host of regions. The, to answer the other question, um, do, what, what do we target if it's specific to dopamine? Is this something downstream and what would it be? What would the region be? I think that based on our data, looking at the fact that we get a lot of the same type of effects of hypocretin receptor compounds when we directly treat the ventral tegmental area means that at least this one region is important. Um, the fact that we've been recording in the nucleus accumbens core and seeing these changes to sensitivity to cocaine uh, suggests that that's another region that's important. One of the studies that we're going to begin soon is to actually record from hopefully medium spiny neurons in the nucleus accumbens and see if there's plastic changes to their responsivity to dopamine following treatment with hypocretins and then begin to address where in this system is one of the final common pathways that are changing the behaviors that we're interested in. So one of the other sort of functions of, you know, the dopamine system is to be thinking about like its role in sort of, um, in learning and aspects like that. And I was wondering, is there anything known, especially now that these orexin, um, hypocretin drugs are, you know, moving to clinical trials, are there any sort of adverse side effects on sort of, un, you know, unintended side effects of manipulating the, the dopamine system so that, you know, maybe individuals are, you know, going within your, you know, your, you know, theory here is maybe you're just in, you know, a hypoarousal state when you're blunting the system. So therefore you're not able to adequately perform, you know, other tasks as, you know, it may have a desired consequence of reducing your motivation to say, take drugs, um, or bring your, 
your arousal level down so that you can fall asleep a lot easier. But is there any evidence that potentially you're going to have other sort of perturbations, behavioral effects? Yeah, so I don't have the data fresh in my mind, um, but there are papers that demonstrate that the hypocretin system is important for uh, a variety of memory tasks. And so I think that you're right. If you take arousal as a construct that's important for a, a series of behaviors and that you need the appropriate level of arousal to support a behavior, that learning could be construed as a behavior. And because of that, now you're going to affect learning. And would if you, even if we, you know, say that this arousal that we're manipulating is equivalent in some way to motivation, I would like to, you know, believe that much of what we do is motivated behavior. And learning has to be motivated behavior. And if we're manipulating motivation, then we're going to be manipulating the ability or the willingness to engage in learning. So I would say, yes, it's going to affect learning. Do you think that the hyperbreathing uh, plays a role in earlier stage as well in later stage of the drug addiction? That's a great question. And honestly, I don't think I've thought about it enough. But let me venture a guess. So I think that because I do believe that it's going to affect learning in some capacity, that when an animal is learning to take a drug of abuse or learning a task to acquire self-administration of a substance, uh, there's a very likelihood, very high likelihood, that you're going to affect the acquisition rate. And we have some data with hypocretin receptor 1 knockdown virus that we slow the acquisition for cocaine self-administration. Now, whether this is directly related to the learning of the task or whether it's related to the motivation for the drug is going to be something that's really difficult to parse. And I think you just, by asking me that question, I think you've given me an extra four or five years <laughs> of research. So I, I thank you for that. But after animals have achieved a maintained self-administration, stable You know, they've learned the task and they're self-administering daily. It clearly has an effect on that. So I would say that it, it probably has an effect on both the early and late stages. Mm -hmm. And do you know where is the plasticity <clears throat> uh, change in the hypocretin uh, dopamine interaction system that, that happened in the drug experience animals? Yeah, so there's, it's not work that I've done but work that Stephanie Borgland has done, which she's shown that the hypocretin, driving hypocretin signaling enhances glutamatergic drive of dopamine neurons. Uh, and then using the antagonist, she's shown uh, deficits in that. She's also shown that in drug-experienced animals, they have alterations to this as well. So, you know, that's one target. I think that most likely it's happening in lots of regions in the brain. And that because we're so focused on the dopamine system, we just know more about it. Hmm. Is it so? It seemed one of the, some of the early studies seemed to show that these hypercretin positive neurons seem to change their activity based upon the arousal state of the animal. Um, but what's making these neurons now change their arousal state if if they're 
secreting the, the hormone that's actually regulating arousal. Yeah, you mean what are the inputs to hypersecretion sure. neurons? Yeah. So we have a paper um, that is called Afferents to the Orexin Neurons. Okay. And it uses just classic, you know, retrograde, anterograde techniques. Okay. And these neurons receive projections from everywhere. Okay. So they're going to be driven by, you know, sensory systems, by autonomic systems. Hmm. Uh, so I don't know that there's a good answer other than to say they're going to be driven by just about everything. Okay. So one of the other interesting things you um, hinted in sort of at the end of your talk was that in these knockout animals, you see, uh, or the, it was the hypocrite knockout animal, you saw drastic gender differences um, in the effect of you know, modulating the, the erection system on dopamine transmission. And would you care to comment on how do you think that came about or you know, does that have behavioral consequences? Are... Um, yeah, just because that's kind of striking also then going back to sort of a pharmaceutical perspective, should we be thinking about these drugs, you know, that we're administering here and how they're going to have potentially one set of effects on males and the opposite set of effect on females? Yeah, absolutely. The, the finding that female knockout animals respond in the opposite direction as male knockout animals and the same with the wild types uh, was very striking, and I didn't want to believe it. And so what was the direction of the effect that you saw? So the hypocretin knockout males show reduced dopamine release compared to wild-type males and reduced dopamine responses to cocaine compared to wild-type males. The females, it's the opposite effect, such that the hypocretin knockout females show increased responses to electrical stimulation compared to the wild-type females and increased dopamine responses to cocaine compared to the wild-type females. So it's literally the opposite direction of what we saw in the males. And so I didn't believe it. I didn't want to believe it. It just I, I honestly thought that we'd accidentally switched the, the labels on the graph. But, no, it's true. We've done it lots of times now. Uh, we're hopefully going to be submitting that in the next few months. But that has huge impacts. If, if people are like these mice, then that would suggest that, that a hypocretin compound that you know, produces a reduction in drug self-administration in males may promote it in females. And that is a huge problem. The clinical trials that have been used with this Balsomra drug, which is the hypocretin receptor 1 and 2 antagonist, uh, has been focused on insomnia, and they've used males and females, of course, and I've not seen any evidence that there's sex differences there. So maybe these, these mice are just fundamentally different than humans, or maybe in the focus of insomnia, this isn't revealed, and if this gets pursued towards drug addiction, maybe it will be revealed. But obviously, if people are like that, that's, it's a game changer. <laughs> So has anybody even uh, looked at just sort of the, the novelty response or basic locomotor activity or, you know, the, the acquisition rate of cocaine self-administration in males and females of the hypocrete knockout animals? No. No. Nobody's really... Somebody should do that. Somebody should <laughs> do that. You should do that. We have the animals, yeah. 
So is it just to clarify? It's only in the knockouts when you use antagonists or agonists. You see the similar effects between the two sexes. So we've begun those studies. Oh, okay. And I I want to say that the de- the evidence that we have is actually a lot like the knockout animals. Really, it's just not as dramatic. Okay. Uh, the females tend to show an increase in stimulated dopamine release with the SB antagonists okay. compared to the males. So this may not just be some knockout phenomenon. Right. It could be really related to the hypocretin disruption in those mm-hmm. animals. That's wild. Yeah. <laughs> it is wild. It is wild. Um, I mean, there's really a whole host of other questions you can ask down that road of just, you know, experientially, like how that the plasticity that has obviously been studied more in the male mice, like pretty much needs to be repeated again with female mice to know that the consequences of it could be completely opposite. <laughs> yeah, you should be working for NIH right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Well, it matters. It matters. We need to know if these systems are identical or not in males and females. And I think this is the way we start. You know, this, this call to investigate this, I think, is an, an important one, as difficult as it might be to implement and you know, for us to suffer through. I think it's important because... In this particular case, with these, this hypocretin system, it seems to be very important, and that needs to be acknowledged and worked into the clinical trials, as you indicated. Uh, can I ask one last question? Yeah, yeah. So, in terms of, so how would this come about in females that they have this opposite response? Uh, is it? Have you checked on you know adolescent females, the ones that haven't gone through puberty or anything like this? No, that's a great question. And all of the studies that we've done, we have not monitored for cycling. Okay, like estrocycling. Estrocycling. Like okay. So, you know, it could be that. We could have just gotten lucky and gotten most of our females in the same, you know, right. phase or something, although I would surmise that that's probably not the case. Yeah. We did, fortunately, for a lot of our studies that we did with that, um, we collected some swabs, and so we okay. have the data to go back and look to see if it's something different across the cycle. But that could be one way that mm-hmm. it happened. We had this, there's no data for this at all, but we had this idea because of some other things that we had done that might suggest that there's differential receptor densities mm. on GABA versus dopamine neurons yep. uh, in the ventral tegmental area. Right. And in that capacity might dictate whether the hypocretin compounds drive or inhibit the dopamine neurons. Right. Uh, but that's early stages of thought study. Sounds like you're going to potentially have the tools to start with that. I think so, yeah. Well, I'd like to thank you all for joining us today at Neuroscientist Talk Shop.